This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. Hello, my name's John Schaefer and welcome to The Wealth Show from CityWire. Today, I'm here with Sebastian Lyon, manager of the Troy Trojan Fund. Sebastian, thank you so much for talking to me today. Uh, pleasure, John. Excellent. So, obviously, pretty severe inflation pressure, not just in the UK, but globally. Um, what strategies are you putting in place to generate a positive real return? Well, I think that's a really big challenge for investors at the moment. Um, you know, over over the life of the fund, which is now 21 years old, we've generated real returns of um, about 3.6% per annum. Um, but I think that just at the moment, obviously, when you're talking about real returns, you're talking about the return, less inflation. Now, if inflation's at 10.1%, which was announced yesterday in the UK, uh, and in a rising real um, interest rate environment, which we're in at the moment, the world's, the world's changed uh, in the last year, and interest rates have been rising very sharply, that's been an incredibly difficult environment to protect capital in nominal terms, let alone in real terms, I mean, there'll be very, very few people out there who will have generated a positive real return um, over the last year. And frankly, I think we're flat or down 1% over the last year in, in nominal terms. So clearly we're behind in real terms. One has to think about the long term rather than about the immediate um, uh, the immediate real return that uh, clearly, you know, I think one needs to be uh, objective and needs to inform investors that that is going to be a challenge. Um, that doesn't mean to say that we're not targeting real returns over the long term, and we have we have generated those. But I think in the short term, it's going to be it's going to be very tough. Sure, I mean, um, I mean, drilling down on that, it, it, sort of your your prospectus says you target real returns over the longer term, over five to seven years. Um, and yes. you know, you're you're mentioning over the long term, focusing on that, but you still have got quite a far a, a way to go. If you say you're you're down one percent in nominal terms. You know what can you do to achieve that inflation-beating return over the the five to seven-year period? Well, I think the key thing is, uh, and one of the things that we've done at Troy over the the medium to long term is that we've been aware that um, the current menu is not necessarily the menu that will be available to investors over the next year or two or three. And I think you need to be. And what I mean by that is that um, the environment can change. It can actually become more positive for investors. And what I mean by that in terms of future returns is actually lower prices. So I think that at the moment, we're very defensively positioned. Uh, We're positioned, uh, we've battened down the hatches, uh, for want of a better description, um, and uh, we're preserving nominal value. If we're going to be able to generate real returns uh, and above average returns in the future, effectively valuations, we think, need to be lower. So uh, in 2021, when uh, we effectively saw, and certainly the first half of 2021, after the pandemic, we were seeing effectively a bubble in a, right across asset classes, whether it be fixed income, uh, whether it be alternatives, whether it be equities, um, particularly, obviously, we saw it very patently in, in meme stocks and unprofitable tech, um, clearly, in that environment, which was similar, although not identical to the one that we saw during the dot-com boom, 
you wanted to be reducing risk um, materially. If you were if you were increasing risk during that environment, you were looking at very very poor returns indeed. Um, we're fortunate enough um, to have the luxury that we can step back. If we think that valuations are very high um, and the risk is to the downside rather than the upside, we can step back, protect capital, which is sort of essentially what we've done over the last year, uh, and wait for things to improve in terms of valuations. And that's really what's beginning to happen and what began to happen at the beginning of this year. So with equity markets having fallen, um, valuations have fallen back. Clearly, we've seen that bubble effectively burst. Um, but now what we're doing is we are awaiting better opportunities, which we think will be forthcoming um, in, in a downturn, which is effectively what we're, gonna, what we're likely to be seeing next year in terms of a recession, both in the UK and in the US and in Europe. Um, and that um, ultimately will provide us with the types of valuation where we can generate good medium to long-term returns and real returns, particularly in equities, uh, less so in fixed income. Well, speaking about valuations and, and drilling down on fixed income, let's talk about UK treasuries. I mean, you've got more than 20% in, in UK treasuries in, in your portfolio at the moment. Um, I assume that's... Yeah, that's very, very, very short, very short data. Very short data, but I, I assume you've, you've, you've still been hit somewhat by that. I mean... No, not really. No. no, I mean, we've been in, we've been in, we've been in T-bills and in, uh, which are, you know, less than a year, um, and we've been in, we've only very recently, literally in the last three months, been buying into uh, short-dated gilts. Yep. And one of the things that has really changed, John, over the last, well, literally three months, let alone the last year, is that we've moved very, very quickly from an era of zero interest rates to an era of, 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 of the old world, if, if you like, sure. of... Um, of, uh, of of higher interest rates, uh, and and you can with the with the fallout of the gilt market that occurred after the mini budget, you could lock in over four, if not four and a half percent in in one to two year money. Yeah. So you are now suddenly getting a, a very good return on your cash. I mean, when I say very good, I hate to add that's not a real return. Not in real terms, of course. Ten percent, yeah. But you are at least getting something. For for a return, you're get, you're getting a risk return, uh, a risk free return, if you like, which yeah. you haven't had for a decade and a half. What does that mean for your portfolio? Does that mean sort of short dated gilts are you're particularly bullish on at the moment? Yeah, short date. Well, I think the interest rates are ultimately going to rise in the very short term, but I think at some stage, probably in the next quite quickly, let's say the first quarter of next year, I suspect that interest rates are going to peak both in the US and the UK, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be slashed lower, but it means that they're not going to go up an awful lot more from about between, call it between four and 5%. Hmm. So um, from a point of view of having not been able to lock in anything like that over the last um, 13 years or so, um, we think that actually that's, that's quite attractive. And we think investors who have been dragooned into taking more and more and more risk over the last uh, over the last decade because they weren't earning a return on on cash, so they've been moved into uh, higher risk um, uh, securities and funds. Um, suddenly now, uh, investors can um, lock in, you know, a, 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 well historically not a reasonable rate, and basically we're back to the world that we were 
before the financial crisis when rates were between sort of four and five percent. It's a very big change. Where do you sit more generally on fixed income duration? Is it all short dated for you sort of outside of UK government debt? So we have got um, UK linkers, uh, sorry, US linkers, yep. TIPS, um, and there our duration has been very short. I mean, one of the things that we recognized coming into this year is that duration was the risk. Um, that was where, the, whether it be in equities or whether it be in fixed income, and the, the more duration that you had, um, the, uh, the, the, the worse effectively your return. Um, so you've seen that in long-dated gilts, you've seen that in long-dated index linked in the UK, which we don't hold and intentionally haven't held for the last five years because we felt they were very poor value. Um, in the US, US tips were considerably better value uh, than in the, in the UK. Hmm. Um, uh, inflation actually, interestingly, hasn't been that different in the US than the UK. And bear in mind that um, although the index link market does move around with the conventional market, we are at least getting that inflation. And if we're in short dated bonds, we're getting that inflation, uh, you know, full on in terms of when, without taking a very material amount of duration risk. So, so a lot of the, the exposure that we have uh, with in Trojan Fund in tips and in, in index linked have been pretty short dated. Um, so we're not taking a huge risk with duration and we are picking up that inflation, you know, week in, week out, month in, month out, which you're not getting in conventional bonds. And that seems to be your most bullish position. You've got about 38% in US tips. Do you think that's going to continue to be this, the case over the next sort of six months or so? Yeah, I think we've probably got enough exposure there, but, you know, around 35%. I mean, it's slightly, it's slightly moved up, partly yeah. because the equity part has moved down. Um, but around around the 35% we feel is is where we want to be. I mean, do bear in mind that essentially a lot of that is, qu again, quasi-liquidity. So because it's short duration, we're not taking a huge high risk. So on the basis that we've got around 25% liquidity, pure liquidity, short data guilt, cash, et cetera. And then with the tips, as you say, we've got 38%. So you could you could say that really we're about 50% liquid or quasi-liquid at the moment. But we'd rather get it through um, through in the past. We'd rather have it through index linked, uh, particularly with what's happening with inflation at the moment. But suddenly now now conventional short data are offering these much higher yields. Um, they're now becoming they have now become more attractive. And, and what about sort of sterling weakness? What, what are you doing to hedge that? Is, is the sort of U.S. Treasury's strategies part of that? Um, you know, what other things are you doing in your portfolio to hedge the, the sterling's weakness? Yeah. So um, my colleague, Mark DeVos, wrote a really good paper about this earlier in the year about the dollar. And um, one of the things that we highlighted was that we felt that the dollar in a world where all asset prices were likely to fall, the dollar was a, a one place where one could get uh, some protection from um, from those falling asset classes as effectively people reverted to the dollar. And that's pretty much exactly what's happened. And we have benefited this year. I mean, the fund's down about 4% year to date, I think maybe 4.5% year to date. Um, that would be considerably worse had we not had a material dollar exposure of around 30% uh, within the fund. So the dollar's been very helpful. Um, clearly, sterling's been very weak. Uh, having said that, it is worth highlighting that um, all developed market currencies um, and many emerging market currencies have been weak. And, and actually, the, the focus has been 
for very understandable reasons in in the last month or so on sterling weakness um, for all of the reasons that we know in terms of the mini budget. But um, actually, if you look at the euro, if you look at the yen, um, if you look at other currencies, they've all been very weak. It's been much more about dollar strength than it has been about sterling weakness. Um, but but the dollar has has protected us to some extent this year, and that's been we've been aware of that. It's been a a very helpful hedge for us. But we have back in sept back at the end of September, beginning of no beginning of October, we did reduce our dollar exposure when when sterling got very very oversold um, down in the sort of mid one oh one oh five one oh six one oh seven that those sorts of levels. Um, after the collapse, after the mini budget, we just felt we didn't want to take quite as much dollar risk. Um, so having been 30% dollar risk for much of this exposure for much of this year in the fund, we moved it back down to the to the low 20s. So we've taken it down roughly by a, th- a bit less than a third um, because we just felt that the the risk for sterling was more even evenly balanced rather than um, rather than not. Um, particularly when we saw that breakdown. But we think the dollar still has a role to play if there are, continues to be a flight to quality. So we do, we still want to have some exposure to the dollar. Sure. You've got a pretty significant allocation to gold in the portfolio. It seems above 10%. And obviously, prices of gold have recently hit a two and a half year low, um, You know, affected by dollar strength as well. Um, why are you bullish on the precious metal? Yeah. Well, I think that, that there's, John, there's sort of two answers to that question. There's a sort of long-term question and a short-term question. So, so, so the long-term issue with gold is that we think, uh, and, and I believe for quite some time, that we, we live in a, a world of, of financial repression. And what I mean by that is effectively negative real rates, i.e. the level of inflation is likely to be above the level of um, interest rates. Um, and in that environment, generally speaking, um, gold does well. Gold does very. If you look back in history, gold does very badly in periods of positive real rates. There's been a lot of chat recently of sound money, um, and there's a lot of politicians saying they believe in sound money. And I'm afraid they might believe in it, but they're not practicing it, and they haven't been practicing it for a very long time. Sound money uh, means that you're earning at least a real positive real rate on on your cash, and we haven't had that really since um, the financial crisis. Um, and so uh, we think that gold, as if you like, a currency that can't be debased, a currency that can't be printed, has a role to play within the portfolio. And over the life of our holding, which goes back to about 15 or 16 years, gold has actually made a very positive contribution to the fund, about 11% per annum in sterling terms and 8% per annum in US dollar terms. Um, but it is, to your point, it's been noisy and it's not always doesn't necessarily do what you expect it to do. Okay. Now, this year, it's worth pointing out, and you're absolutely right, in dollar terms, it's made a two and a half year low recently in dollars. Um, we don't hedge our, uh, our gold. Uh, and so actually, we're getting the sterling return. And actually, only in the beginning of, sorry, a month ago, you were one to two percent away from an all-time high in gold in sterling. Okay, I see. So um, it's not as bad as it looks. Don't just look at gold in dollars. Look at gold in euros. Look at gold in yen, which has made an all-time high very recently. You know, looking gold in other currencies, don't just look at it in dollars. The reason why 
gold has been weaker this year has been because of very material dollar strength. So just bear that in mind. But coming back to your question about the future, I suspect that once we've seen the white to the eyes of interest rates peaking, uh, which will happen at some stage, probably in the next year, um, then I expect gold, uh, the dollar will begin to, um, you know, begin to at least the strength will begin to abate. And at that point, I expect gold will probably do pretty well. There's another there's another point that's just worth making about gold, which is that effectively we view it as sort of portfolio insurance, cheap insurance, so rather than using derivatives. And at periods of intense stress like we had during the pandemic uh, and that we had during um, uh, the invasion of Ukraine in February, March time, it did a really good job in terms of helping us to defend uh, when other asset prices uh, were suffering. Should we move on to um, some of your equity positions? Um, which stocks are you, are you particularly bullish on currently? Well, I think uh, overall, I'm pretty cautious about, about equity markets and have been uh, for the last year. Uh, and the reason for that is that we have lived in a world for a very long time of uh, the, the sort of drip, drip, drip of very low rates, which has driven valuations of equities materially higher over a very long period of time. If, if you look particularly at, at higher quality growth equities, and we do like higher quality businesses rather than very highly cyclical asset intensive businesses, um, we like companies that are generally speaking financially productive and consistently financially productive and growing, which narrows our are the, the the companies and the, the stocks that we like to own. Um, these have all been these have all moved up uh, in terms of valuation over the last decade or so, and so that's the reason why our equity allocation is so low. But what we do want to do is we do want to have some exposure to equities um, that are defensive, particularly when we're going into prospectively an economic downturn. So you don't want to have hugely cyclical or highly levered businesses. Uh, where the cost of capital is rising because the cost of debt is rising. Um, and so things like, for example, we saw yesterday uh, two of our companies announce their profits, Procter & Gamble and Nestle. Um, and um, remarkably, uh, and re- um, we were relieved to see, but Nestle grew their top line by 8 to 9%, most of which was pricing. But it's nice to be able to see companies being able to drive prices up not at the cost of volume, um, and that these companies have got really strong pricing power um, and and therefore can grow their top line and can ultimately grow the bottom line and grow continue to grow their dividends consistently. Are there sort of particular sectors that you're particularly bullish on in, in this kind of environment? I mean, you've got... Yeah, so, well, I think, I think generally staples within this kind of environment are not a bad place to be. So you've got you've got Unilever there, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, we have as well. And I think I think interestingly, Unilever is is one where you know the rating is lower um, for all of the reasons that we know. You know, since the the, the Kraft Heinz bid back in 2017, 18, what they described as a near death experience, um, the company struggled somewhat. Um, they overpromised in terms of their their margin, um, and frankly, some of the some of the company's uh, communications have been um, have been um, better. Uh, could have been could have been better. Um, but uh, you know, we actually saw in the last year or so the rating come come down and the valuation 
uh, now compared to peers looks looks pretty good. And so um, Unilever, which pre- certainly wasn't, um, it was in our top 10, but it certainly wasn't in our top two or three. Uh, we've actually come, become more confident about the outlook for, for Unilever, particularly at this current valuation where the yield's almost at a 4%. Um, and so, um, and, and that's a, that's a, that's about as safe yield as, as as one can get in the in the equity market. So, so no, Unilever would certainly be um, one that we've been happy to to increase uh, as percentage of the port, uh, as a percentage of the overall portfolio in in the last sort of say six months. Yeah, um, Visa. Why do you think that will do in a sort of more uh, under sort of more more difficult conditions? So Visa is an interesting company, but I think that one needs to talk about talk about it in the context of two sides of the business. The first is that payments are moving more electronic every day. I mean, the one thing that COVID has accelerated is uh, the material reduction in the use of cash um, and the increase in electronic payments, not just online, but also, frankly, you know, you go and buy a cup of coffee these days and you use a card instead of using cash. And in fact, many places don't even take cash anymore. So, so, so there's a, there is an ongoing fundamental growth uh, in there. And, and, and the UK is, people, people look at the UK, but the, the UK is way ahead on this. One of the, one of the few things we are, we, are, we are well ahead of. The US, the US is not, is, is probably two to three years behind the UK anything like contactless payments and so um so visa has a visa and amex which we also hold have got huge tailwinds from this point of view in terms of the business the other thing that's just worth pointing out quickly is that um if we do have inflation uh, actually these payments are benefiting from inflation i.e inflation just being passed on so so if you're paying 10 percent more for your cup of coffee that you were a year ago that's obviously being charged visa are picking up their you know, a few pennies in the pound uh, for that. However, people might yep. not go out to buy that cup of coffee at all if there's a more severe recessionary environment. Yeah, transactions don't just disappear. Um, uh, so um, I think the number of transactions that you will be you'll you will be uh, instigating is is, is not going to suddenly collapse. Um, and the good thing is is that you don't need to have large ticket items. Um, you know, it it can be it can be small ticket items. So I I think we uh, it, it's 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 a smaller holding that was in our portfolio. We've 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 taken a few profits this year, uh, end of last year in Visa, um, but longer term it's a business we really like um, and we think it's very well run, uh, and obviously it has that sort of very broad um, global presence. But we think payments there is a very material tailwind for the business of payments, and which is why. You know, we hold Visa and and actually we hold Amex as well. Amex we hold in slightly smaller size purely because there's a there's a balance sheet side to Amex in terms of the fact that it does lend in a way that um, Visa doesn't. Uh, Visa is very much just purely reliant on those transactions. Um, any equity positions that you've been cutting recently, or adding in the same uh, in the same breath? Uh, yeah, no, we, we've we've taken a little bit of money out of uh, uh, on an ongoing basis this year. Uh, so in the summer, when we had the bear market rally, and I was convinced it was a bear market rally, uh, we used the opportunity to just trim uh, holding in 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 Microsoft and Alphabet, um, and just because I feel that those stocks in the in the short to me we like them longer term, but in the short to medium term, i.e. over the next eighteen months or so, we think that they. They will be vulnerable to 
to earnings. And we haven't really seen the earnings downgrades yet in the overall market. Um, that is something which is still to come, uh, we expect, um, over the next uh, year or so. Um, so we just, purely on a risk reduction point of view, we just reduced those holdings somewhat. Um, and then coming back to your point, John, about um, gold and gold weakness, um, we have seen the holding that we have in Franco Nevada, uh, which is a long-standing holding for us. It's done very well for us, um, but it's been a, somewhat weaker this year in the last sort of six months, and we'd be happy to just add to that a little bit as well. Excellent. Just just going back to Microsoft and, and Alphabet and earnings, I mean, a, a company like Microsoft, a lot of its earnings comes from sort of a subscription model. Do you, do you think that's yes. really, do you think yeah. earnings are really going to be affected on that basis? Well, not all of it. I mean, I think they've been incredibly, the numbers at Microsoft have been incredibly robust, um, partly due to their very strong pricing that they've had. Uh, and as you say, the recurring revenue. But I think uh, what would concern me is, is, is market expectations are actually quite high. Um, and, and the valuation differential with the rest of the market is also is also quite high. Um, so expectations are high. Um, and you've seen recently they've been uh, uh, they've been reducing their their headcount along with uh, a, a number of other um, a number of other of the uh, tech giants, um, uh, which gives you an indication that they see things becoming more more difficult in a sort of post pandemic world. Um, there is no doubt that um, the uh, the resilience of the business is you know is very strong, uh, and um, but I think it's more a question of um, expectations of growth, uh, and just it. it these no businesses is totally invulnerable to an economic downturn, and I suspect that's that's what they're preparing for in terms of reducing their headcount or at least stopping stopping doing a hiring freeze. Excellent. Well, Sebastian, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure, John. Anytime. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies. From healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution, Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. 